Welcome to Silicon Bytes. Happy Independence Day to Ukraine and Ukrainians everywhere. This, of course, has been an extraordinary week of news, and we couldn't let the dramatic events of yesterday pass without really devoting the entire segment to it. We will mostly talk about Prigozhin and his mishap with Moscow air defense, which appears to have shot his plane out of the sky. But before we do that, let's head into a short roundup of the news stories. Zelensky has made a moving address on Ukraine's day of independence, saying that Ukraine will not let go of its independence, not now and not ever. President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a speech today, marking 32 years of Ukrainian statehood, that Ukraine will not allow its independence to be torn apart, not by Russia and not by anybody. This is widely reported, but the Kiev Independent has some great coverage on that. It also has an intriguing story about military intelligence reports that there has been a successful raid on occupied Crimea. Now, the details are still sketchy on this, but it is reported that Ukrainian forces have landed on Russian-occupied Crimea and raised the Ukrainian flag this morning as part of an operation with Ukraine's navy and military intelligence. It was reported that special watercraft landed on the Crimea coast on a beach near Mayak, a village on the northwestern tip of Crimea, engaged in combat and raised the flag. Now, of course, on Independence Day, this is a great morale booster, but I think there's more to it. As Ukraine starts encroaching on Russian-held territory in the east and the south, and as it starts to encircle and lay siege to Crimea, I think we're going to see far more of these kind of attacks, hybrid war attacks designed not only to inflict casualties and damage on the Russian war machine, but also to inflict psychological pressure and damage and to severely embarrass the regime in the Kremlin. Now, we'll come back to this idea later in the segment, because I think the demise of Prigozhin is part of a much bigger effort on the part of Ukraine and Ukrainian allies, not just to engage in traditional warfare, but on the understanding that Ukrainian victory is really dependent on the Russian war machine collapsing, and indeed, to some extent, on Russian society collapsing as well. That includes the economy, support for the regime, and of course, it covers infighting between Russia's elite oligarchs and ministries. Well, more of that in a minute. The big news as well this week, of course, was the provision of F-16s and the news that Portugal, amongst other countries, confirmed that it will be joining the international efforts to train Ukrainian pilots and technicians on the F-16 fighter jets. Now, despite all the promises of provision of this capability, we have to ask when it will actually be available, when it will actually start to make a difference on the front lines. It's highly likely that that may not even be this year, but we may be well into next year before F-16s start to have a decisive impact on Russian defensive lines and positions. And let's take a look at the Moscow Times that have caused the Prigozhin plane crash take center stage on its reporting. And the Moscow Times asks, what do we know about what's happened? Of course, there is a vast amount of speculation and there are already at least a dozen theories as to what actually happened to Prigozhin. Well, only time will tell. And to an extent, his death is the main story, rather than how it happened, because of his hugely prominent role 
in Russian political life, in his apparent opposition to Putin's war over the last couple of months, and due to the extreme drama, violence, and theatricality of his ending. Well, that very theatricality and the timing of what is likely to be his murder is incredibly important. Everything in Russia sends out symbols, and this hit against one of Putin's former buddies is highly symbolic. And other news stories, which you may have missed, Russian political activist Maxim Katz has been jailed for eight years in absentia for spreading war fakes. And of course, he's not in Russia. He's not going to serve that sentence, fortunately. And he can carry on being vocal, as he is, in criticizing Putin and Putin's regime. Now, to mark Independence Day, Ukraine has displayed destroyed tanks on the main squares and streets of the city. And this, of course, is incredibly symbolic, seeing this destroyed, rusted Russian armor. And its shame and failures are all too apparent when you look at the lines of rusted war machinery, instruments of death that Ukraine has been able to annihilate over the last year and a half of the war. Russia is also gearing up for its election cycle, and Russian TV has aired an empty stage as election candidates skip the debates. It's a pretty absurd spectacle, and I really wonder whether anyone can now be under the illusion that Russia is going to be holding free and fair elections in the near future, or whether most people now realize that the results will be falsified in favor of the regime and its chosen candidates. Now, turning to The Guardian, again, a leading story, not just in the section about the Russo-Ukrainian war, but on the front page, of course, is the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin. It makes the point that there were no survivors, that there were other people on board that plane, including, it has been reported, the founder of the Wagner Group, Utkin. He has been accused of being a neo-Nazi and an even more reprehensible character than Yevgeny Prigozhin was. At a BRIC summit, the Russian president has defended the invasion of Ukraine. And at the same time, Sergei Surovikin has been removed as the head of aerospace forces. Now, he was reported to have been a key Wagner ally. And The Guardian has a profile of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the hot dog seller who rose to the top of Putin's war machine. So there's no shortage of details looking back on Prigozhin's life, on his actions during the war, and of course his failed mutiny. What is far less clear are the circumstances around his death, who ordered it, and exactly how the last couple of weeks have played out. What can't, of course, be in any doubt is why he was killed. And it links back to the mutiny of two months ago. The Economist, as you'd expect, also has strong coverage, and an interesting angle on here, it reports that Evgeny Prigozhin's reported death may be an attempt by Putin to consolidate power. Now, we'll unpack this in a little more detail in a minute, because this may well anticipate another round of repressions. It may also anticipate a purge of Putin's inner circle and show that those in charge, those who benefit from the regime and its economic base, are going to start to be consumed by the internal power struggle. It also, says The Economist, shows that Russia is nothing more or less than a mafia state. And a similar conclusion was made by the historian Mark Galliotti in his first take 
on the events surrounding Prigozhin, which are definitely worth taking a look. And if you're not following Mark Galliotti, then I strongly advise you to take a look at his Twitter account, and there'll be links there to some of his recent articles. Definitely worth following up on. Well, we're not going to spend this whole episode looking at individual news stories. Rather, I'm going to try and unpack what the death of Prigozhin means and what interpretations we could put on it and how that might influence events that are coming up. Well, to start with, isn't this the most inevitable news? Wasn't Prigozhin a dead man walking from the moment that his mutiny failed and he turned back from taking Moscow? That almost certainly is the case. And of course, it points towards complicity in his death as well. Putin humiliated, diminished, his authority challenged. Wasn't it inevitable that he would take revenge on Prigozhin sooner or later? But it's also worth looking at this in terms of the short and long-term consequences. Now, this is one of the weaknesses of the news cycle. It looks at things that are happening now, it speculates about events in the moment, but actually the death of Prigozhin fits into a much longer cycle, and indeed it fits into a strategy, I believe, of how Ukraine is executing the war. We can make a connection, I think, between Ukraine and the death of Prigozhin. And this is one of the weaknesses of the news cycle in actually taking that sort of telescope view, focusing out, looking at the big picture as to what is going to happen, rather than focusing in on, say, the perceived slowness of Ukraine's counteroffensive, looking at individual issues one by one and not creating connections between them. So what can we say about the longer term trends? What can we say for certainty about where this war is going? Well, in the short term, things are highly unpredictable. We didn't know when Prigozhin would die. We didn't know exactly how he would die. Would it be a window? Would it be a car? Would it be a plane? Would it be something he ate or drank? All of these were strong possibilities. So in the short term, it becomes very difficult to say with any degree of certainty what's likely to happen. But in the long term, there are definite trends. And I think sometimes focusing on Ukrainian victory definitely benefits from looking at the longer term trends. One of these is that the Russian economy will continue to degrade and decline under pressure from sanctions. Another is that this war and its miscalculations and its ill-conceived strategic justification will end badly for Putin. We don't know how he will end. Will it be like Gaddafi in a ditch, Ceausescu taken into the courtyard? Will it be filmed? Will it not? These are details we cannot predict. But the fact that it will end badly for Putin, I think that is almost a dead certainty now. And Prigozhin was definitely a dead man walking. If he couldn't escape to Africa, if he couldn't find an exit for himself, then his chances of surviving while being in Russia were low. And of course, we don't know what's happened over the last two months. He may even have been dead long before that plane crash. A huge degree of mystery surrounds the day-to-day -day events, but the fact he was unlikely to survive the failure of his mutiny, that pretty much was a certainty. The fact Russia will experience an authoritarian slide, the fact that that may accelerate further and start to consume its own people, that also is highly likely based on historic precedent and extrapolated out from current trends as well. The idea that the Russian army will fail and lose ground and may even ultimately collapse, 
that also has a high degree of probability in the long term. We can't say the day, the week, or even the month when that will happen, but everything we see is leading up to that. What we can also be certain of is that civil society will not suddenly blink into existence in Russia. There will not be a popular revolution. There will not be a coordinated, organized uprising. There will not be some coherent civic protest that leads to the overthrow of Putin. This we can almost certainly take off the table as a long-term possibility. So when Putin goes, it's likely to be at the hand of his own Silviki, maybe even the FSB, or another powerful grouping within society. What we can also be certain of is that the classes of oppositionists who are likely to focus more on reforming the Russian system, they will remain divided. They are unlikely to inherit the earth. It's the thieving classes that will remain at the top of Russia's vertical system if that system remains intact. And this is where I think the Western strategy is so muddled. It's focusing on the short term. It's focusing on wishful thinking. It's actually looking to maintain a kind of status quo, a kind of stability in Russia. But as long as that status quo is maintained, systemic change within Russia will not be possible. And long term, it will carry on being an aggressive, destabilizing influence in the world if the Kremlin manages to maintain its grip over the country and the economic structure that currently powers it. So what else does the death of Prigozhin suggest? Well, to my mind, it suggests that military victories will not decide the resolution of the war in Ukraine's favour, or at least will not be the decisive factor. Of course, military victory is required to keep the Russians in check. Incremental advances and successes on the battlefront are also required to keep Western allies supplying weapons and to persuade them that it's still the right thing to do to support Ukraine. So, of course, battlefield success is required, but the incremental nature of it means that, that could drag on for months. It could even drag on for the next couple of years. But Ukraine cannot afford for that to happen. Ukraine wants to protect and preserve its people, not throw them onto Russia's defensive lines and sacrifice them at any price. That's not what Ukraine needs. So it needs another strategy, a backup strategy, in order to try and end this war early. And that, I think, is where we can link Prigozhin and Ukraine's ultimate strategy. Because Ukraine has helped to make Prigozhin a semi-hero prior to the mutiny. I think there is strong evidence that the victory in Bakhmut that helped to consolidate and increase Prigozhin's power was partially engineered by the Ukrainians themselves when they ceded that city to Prigozhin. And when they put up huge resistance and made that battle into something incredibly symbolic, then by ceding that victory to Prigozhin, it elevated him to the point where the internal divisions, envies, hostilities between the Ministry of Defence and Prigozhin were likely to become a flashpoint, were likely to be burst out into the open as they did. Ultimately, that led to the failed mutiny. Not a coup, not a revolution, but a desperate way for Prigozhin to try to renegotiate his contract, renegotiate his position within the power vertical, and go for broke to try and get Gerasimov and Shoigu removed from their posts. His death now, therefore, 
can be linked in part, perhaps, to Ukrainians' strategy in Bakhmut. And why is this so important? Well, collapse, disorder, disintegration, division within Russia, if that can really be leveraged, if Ukraine can pour petrol on the fire of Russian collapse, then it means the war could end dramatically, quickly, and in a very unpredictable fashion. But it's something Ukraine can leverage and have some influence over. Now, what else is happening in Russia, I think, that is a key part of Ukraine's strategy? Well, that is also the reduction of the so-called neutral ground, neutral space, which the majority of Russians, I believe, have inhabited for most of this war. That is a space where, like ostriches, they stick their heads in the sand. They pretend the war isn't happening. They pretend the war doesn't affect them. On the one hand, you have a relatively small contingent of Russians who are pro-war. It's estimated to be 15 to 25%. And you have another contingent who've been not so much anti-war, but anti-dying in the war. They've upped and left the country. But that still leaves the majority, the ostriches, who've carried on with their lives and tried to pretend that this war does not concern them. Now, that space is being attacked from both ends. It's being attacked by Ukraine, that is sending drones to remind people that the war is real and that it affects them. And it's now being attacked from the other end, Russia itself, as the background conscription likely will, will gain momentum and more and more people who thought they were safe from being sent to the meat grinder in Ukraine will now start to get cooled up. And they'll either have to go along with it or go into hiding. So neutrality which was the best course of action for survival for most of this war, for most Russians, is no longer a good strategy to live. Preservation of wealth and life meant that remaining neutral, becoming a sort of amnesiac, was actually very effective up to now. But that middle ground, that neutral ground, will no longer be sustainable, and it will no longer help oligarchs, business people, normal people, to preserve their wealth, their privilege, their status, and their lives. Now, this is in Ukraine's favor because it is likely to stoke divisions, tensions within Russia, which may burst out into the open. And more importantly, perhaps, conflicts between oligarchs and influential people within the various ministries. Now, let's turn back to the theatrics of Prigozhin's death. It's rumored that he had a kind of termination plan to take vengeance against his enemies in the case of his death. And here we see that not only Prigozhin, but also the founder and spiritual mentor of Wagner, if you could call it that, has also died. This may well trigger some kind of reprisal. We don't know what that sort of terminal plan was like, but it is starting to be reported on in the Ukrainian press with a degree of glee, I have to say. And it's not surprising why they would see it in those terms. Then there's the death of Prigozhin itself. And of course, there is going to be a lot of speculation as to whether it was an accident or not. There's talk of missiles being involved, et cetera, et cetera. I think all of these are, to an extent, irrelevant. What we have to look at is the accumulation of coincidences to understand whether this was an operation or an accident. And certainly, I think the latter is highly unlikely. So what is this accumulation of coincidences? Well, first, we have to ask, who benefits from his death? That is absolutely clear. Putin's authority has been challenged. It's been diminished. And this may well be a step 
on the way for him to rehabilitate his control over the Russian system and cow the elites into submission. Putin's public appearances that have followed the death of Prigozhin also seem to suggest that in some way this would have been orchestrated. That also includes the rather bizarre Prigozhin video that appeared over the last couple of days and immediately prior to his death. There was something slightly odd about that, something staged. And I think it will turn out to be highly likely that that video wasn't shot recently, that actually it may be days, weeks or even months old. And then we need to look at the date of the death. It's exactly two months since the mutiny. Now, we know that Putin has a certain fetish for dates, round dates, symbolic dates. And this also suggests that the downing of Prigozhin's plane is by no means a coincidence at all. That then leaves really two options. Was this a direct operation ordered by Putin? Or was it a gift to the Tsar, so to speak? Something orchestrated by his minions, probably with Putin's approval, acquiescence, connivance, and gifted to him on the second anniversary of the mutiny. Either of these are distinct possibilities. And if we are now to accept that Russia has become a mafia state, in fact, that's just ripping the mask off. It's been a mafia state for some time. That shines a further spotlight onto Western hesitation. Ukrainians understand the Russian mindset. Ukrainians understand the terroristic nature of the regime and are fighting it accordingly. The West, however, is holding back. Washington in particular seems intent on not pushing Russia so far that it triggers some catastrophic response or a greater consideration, perhaps, Russian collapse. Strategists in the West seem to be intent on preserving the status quo in Russia. Now, as you said earlier, that is very poor thinking. That is, to an extent, investing in future aggression and violence rather than its prevention. We also have to remember as well that Ukrainians have an extraordinary advantage in this war. And that is a one-way advantage of the Ukrainian language. They can speak and understand Russian fluently. They can monitor Russian communications. They can even pass for Russians in sabotage groups. Russians cannot do the same. They cannot pass as Ukrainians. They cannot speak Ukrainian, understand Ukrainian, or operate the same kind of sabotage groups on Ukrainian territory. To an extent, it's a little bit like a kind of Skrull invasion, if anyone's watching that fantastic Marvel series. And it gives the Ukrainians a distinct advantage in fighting back against Russia. Well, let's look at this also in a bigger picture fashion. And I was asked the question earlier today, why bombings in Ukraine are met with resilience, despite their catastrophic impact and the fact they're so widespread, People rally around, they tidy up the mess, they support each other. You have various organs of the state and local councils that dive in and they do their thing. You have a high level of organisation and you have a kind of distributed responsibility that means things seem to get done. But in Moscow, the drone attacks that are causing far less damage, that are not causing loss of life, at all, really, and certainly not on the scale we're seeing in Ukraine, those attacks are met by panic. 
We saw it when Moscow's business district was almost entirely shut down and hundreds of thousands of people fled their offices and went home despite a couple of fairly superficial drone strikes against office buildings and typically office buildings that are connected in some way with the Russian administration, Ministry of Defense and so on, as well as the secret services and not normal office workers. So why in Moscow do we see such intense panic? I think this highlights one of these long-term trends that are going to help us understand where the outcome of the war is going. And that is the Ukrainian horizontal, Ukrainian civic society and devolved responsibility versus the Russian vertical. And in Russia, you have a distinct distrust of the authorities. The authorities are not there to support the citizenry. They're not there to make life better. They exist to thieve assets and everybody knows it. There's no legal framework. There's no due process that can protect citizens from their own government, from their own authorities. So when a crisis hits, like a drone strike, people do not trust their authorities. They do not trust their leaders to work in their interests or in the interests of the population. What we also see is that the authorities, because of widespread nepotism and corruption, really have a chaotic and disorganized response whenever anything like a drone strike happens. The population also are not prepared for such extreme events because that's not in the interests of the propagandists to tell people the truth, to prime them to expect attacks, rather the opposite. The role of the propagandists is to project Russia's inviolability, its strength, its superiority. So when that is shown up by Ukrainian attacks, the dissonance between reality and propaganda, the dissonance between what they're seeing and the manufactured reality on TV becomes too much. It induces terror and panic in people. What we also see in the Russian system is vertical paralysis, the fear of taking initiative, the fear of, of doing anything until you're told to do it. Because if it goes wrong, or if it turns out that you've done something right, but it's not in the interests of someone higher up or you make them look bad, you will become the scapegoat. Whether you're competent, whether you're not, whether you're moral, whether you're not, it doesn't matter. And people know that it's not a system that rewards people for taking any kind of initiative. They also know that the Russian authorities will sacrifice their civilians to strategic objectives. They will not protect civilians at any price. Ukraine does, Russia does not, and everybody is aware of that. And this is the challenge. Russia has weaponized its information environment to such an extent that there is no trust. There is an information vacuum. The space between reality and propaganda is inhabited by lies and rumor, and that amplifies the terror from such things as drone strikes. What that ultimately means, I think, is that the Ukrainian horizontal will triumph over the Russian vertical. I would put my money on this. When it happens, is impossible to predict. But the fact that it will happen, I think, is an absolute certainty. Slava Ukraina. Happy Independence Day.